All right, Drake. So you're going to have some critical theory, some philosophy for us today. I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Um, why don't you start by just uh, giving the listeners an overview of what you mean by critical the- thinking? Yeah, uh, that's a good place to start. It's kind of um, an elusive term just in the sense that there's no sort of standardized textbook definition of it. Uh, if you were to Google critical thinking definition, you would get you know dozens of variations of it. But there are some overlapping sort of patterns, right? So let's just talk about what we know it involves. So I think the best way to do that is to kind of go back a little bit, uh, you know, give it a little more of a historical context. Um, so, it, you know, like a lot of uh, sciences and theories and domains of knowledge, you know, almost everything kind of stems out of philosophy at some point, right? So you go far back uh, enough in time and, you know, there's some philosopher related to the discipline. So that's definitely true with critical thinking. It was born out of, uh, the, you know, the ancient Greek philosophies, especially Socrates and Aristotle. I know you're a big Aristotle guy. And uh, basically back then it was, and this is still a problem now, but the focus, you know, back in ancient times was really on uh, being able to know if something was true, right? Like, so what is, you know, what does it mean to be, what is the truth of, you know, being a courageous hero or, uh, you know, what is logically true or, or, you know, what is, is God true, right? So these kind of big issues with truth with a capital T. And those are, those are epistemological questions, right? Uh, for those who may not be familiar, philosophy is broken into uh, a couple of different sections uh, like ethics and metaphysics. And one of them is epistemology, which is the study of, of how we know truth, right? How do we know that things are true? And it was a question that was central to a lot of the philosophy that was happening. You say back then, but back when? When, when uh, were these This happening? would have been, you know, 800 BCE to 200 BCE. That's when did Aristotle? He was in around 200, I want to say. I think it was more like 400 400, BCE, oh, yeah. well, you know, um, I was never good at dates, but... Uh, but yeah, the the key the key point being that it's uh, it's before the Romans, it's before we made the the change into the Common Era, um, before these, Jesus. Yeah, before Jesus uh, walked the earth, um, or or was said to, I guess. And uh, yeah, so uh, about 2,500, 2,400 years ago, we're talking about. Yeah, and 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 obviously they weren't. The, it's not like they invented you know, questioning or truth or anything, you know, this is in some form or another, I'm sure was going on in Eastern and Western philosophies for a long time, but this was the first recorded, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the first time it was written down on tablets. So anyways, the, the sort of overarching theme of that, all those sort of inquiries is trying to figure out if there was like a way you could actually have absolute truth and know beyond all doubt that something was true. And basically Socrates never, his legacy is that he just constantly questions, but he never knows the act. He never finds the truth, right? So his famous quote that, you know, um, that basically I, I know that I know nothing, right? I, that's not the exact quote, but the whole idea there is that, you know, he spends all this time questioning people, especially authority figures, people that are supposed to be experts. And they, they never provide him with a, definition that satisfies you know an absolute it's never an absolute truth right and so he you know he dies and that nobody really solves that problem and then for the next you know 1500 years it was basically a a huge issue you know this you had the skeptical movement where basically people just didn't the only truth that you could verify or believe in would be was god right so for a long time that was the answer to the the problem of truth is, you know, you would ground it in God like Descartes did and a lot of philosophers at the, you know, in the Middle Ages. So anyways, the problem of truth never really gets solved. And and then it uh, kind of morphs around, you know, the Enlightenment. This is 1700s, 1800s, uh, you know, the emergence of the new science, Newton, and, you know, and you have the Enlightenment philosophers. And the problem didn't really go away, but it, it starts to become more of an issue because 
you're, you're trying to do good science and you need a way to sort of uh, dispel doubt, right? Like if you're trying to prove a theory right or wrong, you know, you need some sort of, uh, some sort of systematic approach to be able to, you know, to discern fact from fiction, right? Um, you know, so I think the birth of science really was kind of brought the problem back into the, into the, you know, into the front. And so it became sort of an issue again. So you see right around, you know, the time of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, all of a sudden critical thinking, it wasn't called that then, but it's this whole approach that you would basically apply to, it could be, you know, who your elected official is, or you want to overthrow the king or whatever, but all of a sudden um, you could use these sort of tools of the mind to separate sort of the bogus make-believe stuff from the actual science, right? And so you see this in politics, you see this in science, you see this in, you know, in philosophy in general. So all of a sudden it kind of, you know, like a lot of things around the Enlightenment, there was a newfound interest in, in philosophy and logic and, and especially Aristotle and Socrates. People were, you know, re-engaging with those philosophers, you know, a thousand years later. Um, and so that kind of brings us a little bit closer to the modern version of critical thinking, but it kind of has these core roots in it that goes all the way back to the original skeptics, which is, it's, it's basically a way, it's a, to train your mind or to basically a toolkit for your mind on how to separate, you know, fact from fiction. Right. And, you know, it's, we like fiction, you know, like your book, uh, a tale of Alluria, right. But you don't like fiction when it comes to like things that are, you know, dogma and uh, the church kind of ruling your life and pseudosciences. So in the modern age, there's this sort of obsession of using critical thinking to basically separate, uh, you know, bogus theories, pseudoscience theories from actual truth, you know, empirical truth, right? Um, so that, fast forward a little bit, that kind of brings us to the 1900s. And now critical thinking is a common part, especially after the educator John Dewey, famous American philosopher, critical thinking becomes a, a normal part of a liberal arts education, right? If And that's not even just in college, it was pretty common for a long time, you would have some sort of critical thinking model and in your primary education as well, right, in high school. that This is more true in Europe than in the United States, but point is, is all of a sudden critical thinking just kind of became a part of the, you know, the education process, especially when you get into college and, you know, you're doing any, any sort of discipline that involves research, you kind of need a, need a critical thinking lens, you know, to do that effectively where you think. So anyway, so that's kind of the history of it. it. It has these philosophical underpinnings, but it's also rooted in sort of anti-authority movements. So you see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of that in the historical record where critical thinking was used to basically um, circumvent the, you know, the sort of the dogmatic, um, you know, power dynamics that existed. And now you see that now it's kind of morphed into, we have you know, critical race theory, critical theory, uh, we have feminism, all these sort of offshoots of critical thinking, and they're essentially critical thinking for a specific, you know, area of, of concentration. Um, and so critical thinking is pretty much part of everything we do, and, and I, but I don't think a lot of people are familiar with it. Even It's just kind of become part of the fabric, right? And so before, you know, we get too much on a tangent... So what is it then? What, you know, what is it? If, what, if you could put it simply, where I like, this is kind of my version of it, but it's, I like to call it, it's thinking about thinking. So what does that mean? Well, when we, when you're trying to, you know, do something, you're trying to make a, uh, a judgment on something, right? You use whatever information you have at hand. Uh, and so what critical thinking is, is it's basically analyzing the way that you're, you're getting that information and how you're interpreting it. So it's like thinking about your own thinking so that you can have a more efficient approach to knowledge gathering. Does that kind of, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, of course, as we're going through a history of critical thinking, we've glossed over years and years of philosophers and other people who have engaged with the, with the subject and thought about it. 
but one of the things that you said, you know, you talked a little bit about the sort of intersection of critical thinking and faith. And I want to, I want to just highlight something from the, from that time, sort of the 15th century when Descartes, or maybe it was the 16th century, um, you know, started, started getting engaged and it, it's in, so that gap in between um, sort of the Romans and when and the Enlightenment, you know, what's often talked about as the Dark Ages, where uh, belief, the, you know, the only absolute truth that you had was belief in God and faith in God. Um, that really, uh, you know, when, when critical thinking rose up again and when the, when the Europeans sort of rediscovered the, uh, the texts of the ancient Greeks, um, they, they couldn't quite reconcile the two. And, uh, there's, uh, Descartes actually tries to put together like a logical proof of the existence of God. Right. And there was this idea that, uh, you could, you could have both critical thinking and faith at the same time, and you could use one to reinforce the other. And it's over, only over time and sort of through the success of science and, logic and mathematical reasoning at, at that time that the two sort of separated right and now we have this modern conception that faith is sort of like in its own bucket and critical thinking is in its in another bucket and they they don't over overlap and you know my hope is that the the circle that is critical thinking continues to expand and the circle that is faith continues to contract over over time um, because I, I think if you look at the success of, of the two, you know, critical thinking really, really wins out. And uh, as Drake was saying, you know, with as the sort of notions of like a universal education, um, as more people engaged in science and the scientific method, critical thinking sort of became this uh, thing that was just sort of assumed, you know, that we never really talk about. Um, and that's why we wanted to talk about it today, because it's such a critical part of being a productive and well-contributing uh, member of society. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, basically, it's like a toolkit for the mind, you know. So it, it'd be like, an analogy would be, let's say you're an, a successful chef and, and you don't use recipes anymore. You just have your ingredients ready to go and it's all in your head. You're kind of, you know doing it you've done it so many times that you know how to make a perfect steak right but the thing is is that it's the analogy there would be that the word critical thinking is the same thing you you train your mind over time to discern information in a more efficient and fair and factual way right and over time it becomes it's kind of part of your worldview and your framework and and what we're seeing now is there's a ton of people that are and this is kind of the overall topic of the today's show is we're seeing this huge rebirth in conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, they've, they've always been around. We all grew up with, you know, X-Files and, you know, various conspiracy theories, uh, you know, when we were in high school and college. But now it's really taken on a, a political bent. You actually have huge chunks of, you know, the uh, U.S. population that's entertaining and believes in, you know, stuff like QAnon and, uh, you know, the, the anti-vaxxer movement, that the vax was a hoax. You know, or it's a, the Democrats are trying to control everybody by getting them the vaccine, you know. And it there is harmless conspiracies like, you know, that the world is flat. That's probably not going to really mess up anybody's day. But there's a bunch of really dangerous ones going around right now. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk about this. So that's where we're going to get to is how does critical thinking help alleviate or sort of reduce the belief in conspiracy theories? But before we get there, I wanted to kind of circle back on what we just touched on. So we went over a brief history, and it was very short, but about where critical thinking kind of came from historically. But I wanted to give you just a really modern example of how embedded it is sort of in everybody's, uh, a lot of people's worldview, especially people that are educated. They, they tend to really believe in, you know, sort of the efficacy of critical thinking. So I was doing some research before, and I just had this letter. It was in... It just came right up. It's in the Maui news. It was just somebody, uh, you know, sent in a letter to the newspaper. And it's really short, but it came up. Uh, I did a search for critical thinking and then narrowed it down to like the last few days. And this was like what came up recently. So I thought this was a good example. So this is somebody in Wailuku in Maui. 
you know, wrote a letter to the Maui News, and it says, uh, and this, the, this is uh, Lena is the person's name. So Lena says, uh, we seem to live in a time when many people no longer rely on their own intellect and critical thinking skills. It has become easier to allow social media platforms, politicians, and even certain religious groups to influence and steer us away from thinking for ourselves. I suppose it takes more effort to think rationally and engage in reflective, independent thinking uh, that allows you to make informed decisions and form your own beliefs. So basically, she's saying, I guess that's being a little sarcastic there, that you know people just don't have the time to think for themselves. And then she closes, however, in this time when so much harmful and dangerous misinformation is being spread, right, don't take the vaccine, the election was rigged, it's more important than ever to separate fact from fiction. So I thought that was a good sort of just random person off the street example of critical thinking. Uh, and and it, she does a good summary of basically what the problem is here is that if we if people kind of lack critical thinking skills, we're just going to, it's like a virus spreading. It's just more and more people are drinking the Kool-Aid and, and kind of not reflecting on their own thinking, right? They're not thinking about their thinking. They're just regurgitating someone else's talking points, right? Yeah, well, I think, I think you really uh, nailed it with your analogy, right, of the toolkit for the mind, right? I've been reading uh, this, or not reading, I've been watching this show alone. Have you seen? No, no, I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, so it's a survival show. The premise is they take 10 people and they drop drop them into the wilderness at different campsites. And they have to survive on on their own in the wilderness. And whoever survives the longest gets $500,000 or some big prize like that, right? And... The, you know, the, you're, you're allowed to bring 10 things with you and everybody brings a, a different 10 things, but everyone brings a multi-tool, right? And right. like there was one time that, that someone didn't bring a multi-tool and they just lost <laughs> really, really quickly. Right. And, you know, the, the modern world is, we're not surviving alone, but uh, it can seem a little bit like a wilderness, you know? There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot more inputs of information, a lot more feeling of like being it being a jungle out there than there was, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. And without that toolkit, without that multi-tool, right, it's it's just too easy to uh, fall victim to, you know, the, the, the curse of nature, I guess. Um, and it's, it's that way with conspiracy theories, right? When you give up con- critical thinking, when you, when you don't take that multi-tool with you, all of a sudden you're subjugated to all of these, you know, misinformation campaigns, disinformation campaigns, and it can be a, a really, really difficult to navigate the world without succumbing to, you know, the enamors of one of those conspiracy theories. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 I, and we'll close on this bit in a few minutes, but, uh, a lot of what I think you're describing is a lack of agency, right? So, all of a sudden, you're no longer in control of your own belief system, right? Somebody else is pumping your beliefs for you, right? That's dogmatic thinking, you know, in a nutshell. And that was probably the norm for 99% of humanity, right? Uh, it's, this is all very modern thinking, this idea of being your own sort of uh, self-directed, you know, autodidactic uh, thinker, right? That's not a, you know, probably there was probably some evolutionary benefit to just following the herd, you know, for a long time. But then we wouldn't have things like science and really cool stuff that we have now. Look how much we've accomplished in the last 500 years since the birth of science. So, you know, critical thinking is kind of new to the scene in a, in a weird way. The ancients were touched on it, but nobody wanted to listen to them, right? <laughs> That's why we had the, the dark ages. But anyway, so moving a little bit forward on this. So wh- how is critical thinking related to the conspiracy theories? I mean, be- besides the obvious, um, and that brings up a, a recent study if you just Google critical thinking and conspiracy theories, it'll come right up. There's dozens of articles about this study, um, and we'll we'll provide a link to it on our on our website. But basically, there was a recent study. I think it was early 2020. It came out where they did a bunch. They interviewed a ton of you know thousands of people, and they found a common pattern where people that had scored lower on critical thinking skills. Uh, also tended to believe in more conspiracy theories, right? So there's a correlation between one's ability to discern information and 
and uh, their belief in conspiracy theories. So people that believe in conspiracy theories also uh, didn't score that well on critical thinking, right? And so that's what I want to unpack just a little bit. So what, you know, what were the patterns that they found in this study? And, our, or, you know, how can we flesh that out a little bit? I mean, one of the, there's basically three sort of prongs to it, and they all fall under what we call like a cognitive bias, right? So cognitive bias, I mean, how, what do you mean, understand that to mean? Yeah, so cognitive biases, my understanding is that um, we have, we have certain things that we look out for that we, that I, I'm trying to explain it without using an example of a cognitive okay. bias, so I don't like steal your thunder here. Um, but basically we're, we're mentally predisposed to believing certain things, right? To believing things that maybe agree with us or that fit some model that we have in our heads of the way that life is. Um, and when we're, when we engage with information, whether it be a study or a blog post or a tweet, right? These biases sort of, uh, shape what weight we give to those things, right? And it's, I think where you're going with this, right, is that it's important to be conscientious of these biases, not because we can get rid of them, not because we can, um, you know, just for, just shove them aside and, and not be biased, but rather because we should understand where we are biased so that we can uh, endeavor to sort of overcome those biases. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, the, it's very common. We all have our own cognitive bias. I mean, we wouldn't re- really be able to function, you know, without them in a, in a way, right? They're just, it's just hardwired into us, you know, to, to basically look for things that reconfirm our, our already held beliefs, right? And, you know, and that probably has some evolutionary advantage, but it's not good for ethics and science and sort of uh, research in general. You don't, you don't want cognitive bias because it, it'll cloud your your you know field of study and you won't be able to get a get at the thing you're trying to research clearly basically it 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 uh you want to be able to discern all doubt and if you have a cognitive bias it in the way you might not you might basically be blind to something right and you're you're trying to do research you're not able to see what you're the a very objective view of what you're you're studying so you see these cognitive biases in uh the conspiracy theory crowd it's kind of a, it's one, it's probably the number one pattern that, you know, uh, you're going to see in anybody that's believing in a conspiracy theory. And so the three sort of traits or the biases that, uh, that we were reading about is one, you have the sort of the confirmation bias, which is very, very common. It just basically is when you are re everything you are studying, you're re you're looking for things that reaffirm your already held belief rather than doing objective research. So, you know, uh, a sort of a trivial example would be, or it's not really trivial, but let's say, you know, you didn't believe that the mass helped prevent the spread of COVID because you just, you, you know, your father told you that they didn't do anything. Right. And then, you know, you're getting all this flack from your friends because you won't wear your mask in public. And then, uh, to prove your point, you know, you, you're seeking out any article or doctor or anybody that would already agree with you, right? So you're, con- you're confirming your bias instead of challenging it, right? So that's kind of one of the hallmarks of critical thinking is you want to do the opposite. You want, you want to challenge your already held beliefs. And, you know, a common example, for, and I know this is probably true for you as well as me, is, you know, we were raised Catholic, pretty traditional upbringing, had to go to church, you know, every Sunday. And, and it wasn't until I got in my early 20s and kind of, you know, not ironically got into philosophy and science that all of a sudden I, I realized that my whole worldview of what I thought was the sort of the, the story was completely expanded and blown open because all of a sudden I wasn't, I, I started to realize that there's a whole universe that we don't understand and this beauty, you know, the beauty of science is that you know, it's a constant questioning and re-examining our beliefs. And so all of a sudden I had sort of a personal change where I went from sort of a, a Catholic upbringing worldview to, you know, basically a more secular mindset. And I think that's a that's kind of a process 
or a coming of age story that a lot of people could relate with. It doesn't mean necessarily you're not religious anymore, but you kind of outgrow the sort of dogmatic thinking that you're raised around, right? And it, so, <clears throat> so life in general is just a constant, re- you know, acknowledging our confirmation biases and growing from them. That's, I mean, you could say that that's a type of maturity, maybe. But the problem for the conspiracy theories, uh, you know, followers is that they don't realize that they're doing a confirmation bias. So they're never critiquing their own. Comp- they're just right. trying to fill the fill the well, the gap. It's even more nefarious than that, right? At least for. Uh, some of the big political conspiracies like QAnon, um, right? Which is not only have they been set up to just dwell in this confirmation bias sort of loop, but everybody, every dissenting voice, right, has been described essentially as an enemy, right? So, so not only in, in order to engage with this conspiracy not, uh, theory, not only... Uh, are you engaging only in when stuff that agrees with you, but you're specifically being told and, and have the understanding that things that don't agree with you are malicious or nefarious or are conspiratorial against you, right? And, and so it's like confirmation bias on steroids, you know? It's, it's like the next level of confirmation bias, um, and it's, it's a big problem. Yeah, exactly, and, and I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because basically it's two. There's two parts to the confirmation bias. One is you're you're looking for things to support your already existing beliefs, but the other one, which you pointed out, it's really important, is you're also ignoring things that contradict your belief, right? And that's the big one because and we we've all been there. You know, you have your crazy, you know, cousin that uh, voted for Trump, and you know. Uh, soon as they storm the Capitol, instead of admitting that, you know, uh, they're, you know, you're voting for the wrong team, you know, they just said, they mock it up as well. That's just a conspiracy from the left. It was actually Antifa storming the Capitol. And, right. So, so instead of, igno- instead of acknowledging the facts, right, that, that the Capitol was stormed by Trump supporters, you just spin it another way. And that's kind of the, the, you know, the beauty of believing in conspiracy theories is, it's a lot like believing in God. <laughs> you don't, there, nobody can prove you wrong, right? Yeah. Because they don't exist, in, the conspiracy theory doesn't exist, right? So you, you can always spin it another direction. Well, that's because it's a cover up, or, you know, and that's not to say that conspiracy theories don't come true, you know, uh, that definitely happens, but not, that, not these grand level conspiracy theories. They're all obviously made, you know, made up, but. So I think I think it's probably worth pointing out because uh, this is a philosophical concept as to like why it's so hard, right, to falsify these things. And philosophically and logically, you can't prove a negative, right? And and when I say can't, I don't mean like it's hard to you or you know it's challenging. I mean like it actually you can't you can't prove that things don't exist. Um, and that's, I think one of the things that makes these conspiracy theories so hard to root out, right. Is you, there's no way of proving that there isn't a conspiracy going on. Right. Um, you can, the only, the best you can do is, is prove that it's very unlikely that it's, that it's happening. And, and that's just not the same thing for most people. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and so there's a little bit of, and and this is kind of where I, I wanted to take the conversation anyways, but. There's a little bit of collective narcissism, right, to use the term from uh, one of our sources. And the whole idea here is you're not just, uh, you're part of a, it's almost like a herd mentality. It's you and everybody else that's in on the conspiracy is on the same page, right? And anybody from that disagrees with that, they're, they're just wrong, right? And so there's almost this sort of habit to sort of, like, I guess another way to put it is if nobody else believed in a conspiracy theory and it was just you, it wouldn't work, right? It's like you need you, you need your cohorts. Your that's how they all start, right? Yeah, well this is maybe a good time for me to bring up uh something that I've thought about a lot about. Um which is have you heard of like the bowling alone problem? No. So the there's this theory and it's a sociological theory um that says that, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, back in the 70s, um, 
all of these, you know, I guess just sort of like adult white men, right, would be parts of social groups, right? They'd be part of bowling teams. They'd be part of like the Elks Lodge. They would be, they would, and they would have something to do on the weekends and nights, you know, that sort of um, is engaging with other people, um, keeping them engaged with the community. And, you know, as our world, as our society has become more, information-based, we've sort of lost these social avenues, right? And it's created a big gap in uh, the way that people engage participatorily with uh, the community, right? Um, and that these conspiracy theories, like through the collective nar- narcissism that they, that they exhibit, which we should probably define here in a second. So um, they, it, they offer that same sort of sense of community to people where they don't have it. Right. Right. And so now people, you know, people like my dad, that's where they're going to seek out their social engagement, um, because they can't get it through, through other means that were probably, you know, back then a lot more productive and healthy to, to have. Although back then they were probably also like super racist and sexist. <laughs> right. So, you know, the, uh, something might be lost in the balance, but um, yeah, let's, let's define collective narcissism. Cause I, I read that article that you sent and it was, I I thought it it was very thought provoking and they use that term collective narcissism. And well, I'll tell you how I understood it. And then maybe you can, you can tell me what you think. So um, narcissism, of course, I, I, I love the term. It has an interesting history. It comes from a Greek myth about Narcissus. Uh, who was a gentleman who was obsessed with how how good he looked, um, and uh, I, I forget exactly what happened. I think there was probably some enamoring between him and a and a god or a goddess or something like that. Uh, but he ended up getting turned into a flower that always <laughs> bent towards the water so it could see its face. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, and so narcissism um, is is about being very like self-important, uh, self-indulgent, um, and self-centered, right? Um, and so this collective narcissism, it, the term is about a group that exhibits those same behaviors, right? The group creates its own sense of self-importance. It, it's, own sen- it's, it's self-indulgent to itself, right? It's very self-centered to itself. Um, and you see that like, I mean, that's like the hallmark of conspiracy theories, like even innocuous ones like, uh, you, you know, you brought up the earth being flat, right? That uh, likely isn't going to end in, in people getting harmed, right? That people right, believe right. that. But, you know, flat earthers uh, have this sort of like self-importance to them, right? Because they believe that they, be- and they have the right, uh, you know, knowledge and everybody else is wrong. And this is like amplified in the political conspiracy theories, right? That lead to people thinking that they can overthrow the government of the United States. Um, And so, yeah, that that's what collective narcissism meant to me. I, 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 I'm curious what your thoughts on the term was too. No, I think that was uh, put quite well. I mean, that's, I I agree with you on that. And I think the, the political examples really uh, apt because you know, right before the storming of the Capitol, uh, Trump said, you know, the election was stolen, and he said this in a press conference, you know, and and that that was the that was Trump leading the collective narcissism, right? Because he knew if he said that, his cronies would would basically buy into it. This conspiracy, he literally started a conspiracy that day. He said the election was was taken from us, and now you know, I think now is still like a third of the. Republicans think the election was stolen, even though Mitch McConnell said he literally said that's a conspiracy. It's not true. Mm-hmm. And that's from, you know, a pretty staunch uh, re- uh, Republican. Right. So even even old Mitch, you know, has a little bit of critical thinking there. You know, I hate to say it, but <laughs> but at least he could tell that it's a conspiracy. So that says a lot when people in your own leadership group are saying that, it, you know, you believe in a conspiracy. And, and so that kind of brings us right to the sort of the third aspect that so we have the collective narcissism we have the confirmation bias and then you have this sort of enlarged thinking or proportionality bias and the idea there is any the bigger the mystery or the bigger the problem the bigger the conspiracy right so you know the biggest problem we've all 
felt in the last year and a half is the pandemic, right? And nobody knew what was going on at first. You know, the health officials didn't know. The general populace didn't really know. And so it was ripe for conspiracy making because you have this pandemic, right? A, a pan problem that's affecting the whole world. So, you know, I can't think of a better, you know, backdrop to come up with a conspiracy, right? Because it's so massive and hard to understand that you have to think that, you know, it was caused by a cover-up, you know, in, in the Wuhan lab or the liberals created the virus as a hoax to brain control, you know. So basically proportionality bias is this idea that you match the bigger the problem, the bigger the conspiracy behind it. So if you take our example with the flat earth, the flat earth isn't really a problem, right? The election going to the Democrats, that's a problem if, if you didn't want them to win. You know, the, the virus is a very real problem. But the flat earth is not really a problem. So so the the answer to the flat earth is, is kind of a weak conspiracy, whereas, uh, you know, with, with the election being stolen, we saw the results, right? People stormed the Capitol because they literally believed that it was, uh, the election was, you know, a, a fraud. So, I, so anyways, we have proportionality bias. And, you know, the simple example there is, you know, people want to know how, do, how did the ancients build the pyramids? Well, we don't know, you know. And there's probably a bunch of uh, scientific answers to that now, how they're built. I'm pretty sure, actually, they moved huge stones with, you know, uh, forced labor, probably, right? But point is, is you could easily just say, well, the ancient aliens built the pyramids, right? Because it's such a mystery, such a big mystery, there's got to be a big answer, right? You know, so that's kind of an easy way to remember proportionality bias. Just think ancient aliens in, in the pyramids. And, you know, there's a whole show now on, on History Channel that... <laughs> kind of entertains that those sort of conspiracies, and I know you know not knocking on the aliens because I know uh, you know who knows right. Um, so that's the, the we have the confirmation bias, the collective narcissism, and the proportionality bias. So those are the common patterns you see in at least in the modern day sort of conspiracy theorists. Um, and so that brings us. So why is it a big deal? Well, obviously we talked about you know the storm in the Capitol. That's kind of an indirect outcome of you know, this huge cult movement, you know, and you see this with the QAnon crowd as well. But I think the real problem, at least for me, is is that the conspiracy theory allows the individual to kind of uh, look the other way for the to what the actual problems are, right? So, like, global warming is a very actual problem that we're facing. The virus is a very actual problem. But instead of trying to, you know, critically approach those issues... The conspiracy allows you to not have to do that thinking. And so what happens is that you can, whatever your problem is, like let's say the economy crashed and, you know, instead of blaming it on, you know, uh, you know, industries and, and basically, out, you know, actual economic factors, you blame it on a conspiracy, right? So it takes whatever your problem is and it puts the blame on some outside source that, that can't be verified, right? Going back to our problem of, you can't prove it true or false, right? And so the problem there is then the individual doesn't actually, there's no motivation for them to, to improve their life because they think that the problem is beyond them, right? It's like, they, it's like they're giving up their agency to the conspiracy itself, right? Instead of saying, well, actually, there's a very real problem. I can put on my mask. I can get the vaccine. I can, you know, start living more, uh, reduce my eco footprint, you know, and carbon emission, Right. Instead of like trying to change the world and and be part of that change, uh, when you put the blame on the conspiracy, it basically it allows you to kind of check out. You're no longer a participant in the in the whole process, right? And and so there's a powerlessness that is sort of part of the conspiracy theory movement, and the and what it does is gives a false sense of self control. So if you know that. Obama and the liberals are the reason that you lost your job and that you have to wear a face mask, then you basically have, you, you have like a myth of control or you, you think you have control over your life, but you really don't, right? So the conspiracy allows you to have this false sense of self-control. And, and, but in reality, it's actually you've given up your agency because you're, you're believing in sort of you know, make-believe at that point. So anyways, I think that's the dangerous part because... Uh, if you look at, there's, you know, 
thousands of studies on fascism and World War II and the Holocaust and all that, and like kind of what sort of led led to all these people, you know, rallying behind Hitler and doing these terrible things. And it's and I think it's very much it's that powerlessness. It's that it's giving up your independent thinking, right? You're no longer thinking critically. And, and I think that's important. So to me, the big danger here is that if we just kind of let this keep going and more and more people are, are engaging information, especially with the internet, and they're not thinking critically or learning basic critical thinking skills, you're going to have generations of people that are kind of like ripe for fascism or drinking the Kool-Aid. And we're already seeing this, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of these Trump supporters are baby boomers. Yes, <laughs> so they're our parents' generation, which is weird because a lot of those people did get educated. You know, so I don't know. You know, that's a whole other topic: is how how can somebody that is educated kind of lose their critical thinking ability? Right? Can you? Because you can't. You gain it, but you can also lose it. It's like a it's like a language or playing guitar. You have to kind of constantly be refining it. Right? As soon as you stop, then you're you're right for the takeover. Your mind is. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't think, I don't think many people would argue that our education system in the fifties and sixties was really promoting critical thinking, <laughs> you know, like our education system back then was, was set up to create factory workers and, right. and, um, you know, people who worked well on an assembly line and, uh, you know, maybe that education does sort of lend itself to, to conspiratorial uh, thinking. But I, I wanted to mention or just bring up, maybe we can talk about it for just a minute, because uh, you brought up global warming, climate change, right? Which in my mind is like this perfect place to have a positive conspiracy theory, right? right. So, you know, at, at 30 years ago, when we, 20 years ago, when it first started happening, we were... Like, okay, everybody needs to reduce emissions in their cars and, you know, but now we know that like most of the carbon that's being spilled into the atmosphere is coming from like a hundred large corporations. Right. And like, doesn't that sound conspiratorial to you? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like a shadowy cabal of a hundred rich CEOs are right. ruining the planet for everybody else. You know, it's like almost the plot of a Captain Planet episode. And, but yet it's the same people who are really into conspiracy theories who, who think that climate change is a conspiracy, you know, that, <laughs> right. that the conspiracy is us talking about climate change existing. And it's just mind boggling to me. And uh, it, it makes me feel uh, like, you know, we haven't like gone there quite yet, but it makes me feel like it's just, it, it's so political, right? That there, there's just something about being on the right side of politics that makes you believe weird stuff. Yeah. And, and it, it just seems, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, you talked about education, you talked about, um, these cognitive biases, but I just don't get why the same people who are willing to think that, um, you know, the COVID virus was manufactured in a lab in China, right, aren't willing to believe that carbon emissions are being manufactured in corporate, evil corporations, you know? Like, what's the difference in those two things? Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's mentioned in, this, in the study about critical thinking and in relation to conspiracy theories and what they found is somebody, you know, let's say uh, you think that Obama didn't actually get Osama bin Laden, that he was already dead. Those people that believe that conspiracy also believe that he's still alive. Right. So there, and I think that's kind of what you just touched on is there's this sort of, you will manipulate the theory either way, as long as it confirms your, what you want, the outcome you want. And the outcome is the same every time it's and this, is what we just talked about is, you're putting. You want to be able to point the blame on something outside yourself, so that it's so that you can, you know, get in that collective mindset with the other narcissists and basically say it's all about you. You're you're a victim of the conspiracy, right? And so the conspiracy just has it doesn't really matter what the conspiracy is. It just has to make you the victim of it. That's the sort of you know underlining thing. So if the election's stolen, you know, it makes you wonder what if 
you know, Trump would have won by just a few votes, probably a lot of people on the left would have said it was a conspiracy as well, right? That it was rigged or whatever. You know, so I don't think it even really matters uh, what the outcome of the conspiracy is. It's just whether or not it allows you to blame someone else for your problem, right? And, you know, so uh, we see this now. It's a big problem because people still think the election's rigged. They don't believe in, you know, getting the vaccine. You know, it's really conspiracy theories are starting to fuck shit up a little bit, right? For a while, those people were kind of, you just ignored them. But now it's really starting to mess with our day-to-day lives, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's important that we re-engage this idea of thinking about thinking, you know, critical thinking. And because we're going to be, it's maybe not in our lifetime, but the next generation, you know, they're going to be facing this life-changing, you know, global event, right? And the last thing, if we're going to like figure out how to save the planet at this point, we're going to need like a ton of scientists and scientific mindset and critical thinking mindset because those that's those are the generations that are going to have to basically adapt to the global warming in, in an extreme way. And, and you can't, and what you don't want is like, 70% of the world, like, thinking dogmatically and believing in conspiracy theories, you know, because how, how the hell are we going to save the planet then, right? Mm-hmm. It won't. It'll we'll just go to war, and it'll be just like it's always been. Uh, so I really think critical thinking is very, you know, it's, it's essential to saving the planet. It's essential to allowing everybody to live a little bit better, to level the playing field, you know, and, and, uh, and there, it's under attack right now. You know, you see this... The schools, a lot of schools are outlined um, teaching critical race theory. You know, you mentioned our, the education in the 50s, 60s was probably wasn't that uh, great. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think about our own education. I didn't even know about, um, you know, the Tulsa uh, massacre. I had no idea about that until like a year ago when it was all over, you know, the news. And, and so somehow like that was... I had a weird his, U.S. history upbringing, right? I had like a cookie cutter, perfect little narrative, you know. So the fact that people are making it illegal to teach critical race theory—that's like a direct example of how critical thinking is under attack. Because the whole idea of critical thinking is is uprooting your bias, right? It's like digging them up. Well, and, yeah. This is—I mean, this is another great piece here because it's. Right. When, when we were growing up and we didn't necessarily have the sense of it while we were in school, but then you get you get to college, you, you start broadening your perspective and you recognize, right, that some stuff was hidden from you as a kid, you yeah. know, and that was like the conspiracy, right, was that, you know, the man, the government or the teachers or whatever were, were hiding things from you, the student, right, and they were causing you to like believe certain things. And now we're by banning stuff like critical race theory, we're, we're like doubling down on that conspiracy, right? Like we're the, the people who are in favor of, of banning teaching, you know, that racism exists in this country and has existed since its inception and affects things on a day-to-day basis, right? Like those people are the conspirators. They're, they're the shadowy cabal of people who are, uh, you know, hiding the truth, from people and and they're the same people who believe in conspiracy theories that's what's so astonishing about it is like the the people who think that the world is run by some small group of evil elites are the ones who in their policies and in their in in how they vote are advancing evil cabal policies you know and it's I, you're you're totally right, right? These conspiracy theories are just used as a way to justify their own behavior, right? To justify right. their own positions, to make them feel better about themselves, and they're really doing it to the detriment of us all. And I, I agree with you; it does seem a lot worse now than it did even five, ten years ago. You know, like I can't remember another time where I felt conspiracy theories were affecting. Uh, our day-to-day lives as much as they are now. Certainly with anti-vaxxers and, and unmaskers and people just who aren't taking the, the pandemic seriously, right. right? Who are literally causing other people to get sick and die and are getting sick and dying themselves, right? Like clearly that's affecting people's daily lives. 
whereas, you know, before the pandemic and before the, you know, Trump was elected president, I can't think of anything that was really, you know, that egregious, right. you know? Yeah, it wasn't in, it wasn't socially acceptable, really. Like, you were kind of cuckoo if you were talking like that. But yeah. then you have a popular president, and I, and I say popular because, you know, 45% of the country voted for him, right? Or more than that or whatever. Less than that, actually. Less than but, that. <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't unpopular. I mean, his legacy is now, but the fact is a ton of people got behind that sort of rhetoric that he was pushing, and and it, it made it cool to believe in conspiracy theories. It made it socially acceptable, right? And and that's kind of a big step back, you know? If you think about it, like, here we are, we're fucking landing rovers on Mars, but then, like, there's a president of the the wealthiest nation in the world believes in these like bogus conspiracies, right? Like that, how is that even possible? I mean, I don't know, but that's the great experiment. That's, you know, part of you know, my brother, he's a little more moderate than me, but one of my brothers, and you know, he says that Trump basically was, this is exactly the American experiment. This is how it's supposed to work. You don't like him, you get him out of there, you get a new president, right? Yeah. And, and so in a weird way, it's like, this is a huge lesson for us, a wake-up call. And luckily, he didn't get reelected. You know, hopefully he won't get elected again in 2024. But this is like a call to action for, for all people to, like, think better, to think, uh, you know, in a way that allows you to discern the, you know, to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? Like, so that it's not just... Um, you know, we, I don't want it to say it's just something that a problem on the right or, like you said, it does seem to lean more towards the Trump crowd. But just in general, to prevent this from happening again or, get, or maybe next time it will be somebody even worse than Trump, right? Um, like, a, you know, some sort of civil war uh, scenario. And so we don't want to go down that road. So we really need everybody needs to just engage a little bit more critically with their own biases and. Um, you know, because what do you think about that? Because I, I, one thing I find is that if you point out the bias in someone's belief in a conspiracy or whatever, or you point out, point at the facts, you know, you give them tons of evidence, they don't change, doesn't change their mind. So is it, are we helpless in trying to change the, these people's mindsets? Or do you think there's a way we can break in with a little bit of critical the, uh, thinking somehow? To help, I don't want to say change their mind, but allow them to come to better conclusions, basically. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really good question, you know, and I wish I had a more hopeful response. (laughs) But, uh, you know, everything that you read about this, uh, you know, cult-like behavior, people believing things that that aren't real... Uh, you know, one of the things I read long ago that, that stuck with me was that you can't reason someone out of what they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. Um, and it's, it's unfortunately very true. Um, you know, having a podcast like this, talking about critical thinking, I, I think we would be deluding ourselves if we thought that we would reach, uh, through the veil towards some people who believe in conspiracy theories and, and extract them from their belief. I do, I do think if you have the stomach for it, that engaging uh, people uh, who might be family members lightly, not like all the time, you know, right. but just being a consistent presence um, that of that's basically sort of like, hey, I'm here for you when you get out of this uh, this crazy mindset. Um, I I do think there's something there, but like I said, I don't have any. I don't have a very hopeful statement here. Um, I think for us, you know, the big, the biggest thing that we can do is help to get people to a point where they don't fall into the trap of conspiracy theories to begin with. You know, I think you do that through education. Um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the biggest, uh, differentiators is whether somebody has been to college or not. Right. right. Um, and so doing things like making public college more affordable and, or free, um, might go a, a long ways towards try towards stemming sort of the onslaughts of conspiracy theories. Um, I think if you can, um, engage with people thoughtfully and, and, um, you know, calmly before they get conspiratorial, 
um, I think that can really help. But it, yeah, the the way the way we affect that is like through our votes, through through you know what we're what we try to accomplish day to day. I don't think I don't think there's any sort of like soapbox you can get on, onto yeah. that will help the situation at all. Well, I mean, you sit. Uh, the one thing we've seen a lot of the big tech do is now they have these, you know, pop-ups if if the article is like, you know, not based on fact or whatever, it'll give you like a warning, right? Yeah, I think that goes a long ways. I, I really do. I think, um, you know, the the social media giants are coming around to the idea that they need to police their systems a little better from misinformation and, and disinformation, um, you know. The deplatforming of Trump, I think, was pretty successful. You know, um, I, I, removing people's uh, megaphones um, can can have like some benefits. You know, um, and so you know, I hope to see I hope to see more of that in the, in the future. Uh, we can get into like questions of censorship and and stuff along those <laughs> yeah. lines at some other like podcast date. Um, but yeah, it, it it's. I don't believe it's a slippery slope, right? I don't, I don't believe that um, banning Nazis is a slippery slope towards banning everybody. Right, you know? right. And, and we're totally, we like the idea of banning Nazis. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, and, it, and, and uh, one of the things that, the, that they've found is when you have those, when you take Trump off of Twitter or you have a pop-up ad that says this is fake news or whatever, it actually kind of, reinforces the belief in the conspiracy theory for a lot of people. Of course it does. Yeah. So, yeah. so maybe that's, I think it's a good approach because, and I was listening to another podcast about philosophy recently and this guy was talking about how he, his, uh, you know, his distant relatives will come on his Facebook and just like comment the hell out of, you know, just not even engage in discussion, just like straight up out of the gate, just like saying nasty things, you're wrong, you know, the, liberals are behind it or whatever and and so he was talking about well you know i'm not going to change that person's mind but maybe like one of my cousins who's a little bit on the fence about the vaccine reads the post and leads the comments and then they do actually have a little bit more of an informed yeah uh, thinking and so the hope i think is not that we're gonna not that those pop-up ads are gonna change the conspiracy theorist's mind but but somebody that's kind of like entertaining the conspiracy theory, but it might uh, it might instill some doubt in them, which is good, right? Yeah. A little skepticism towards the conspiracy theory, and that's kind of that. If we can get that, that's a, I think a step in the right direction. And and um, one of the things that in relation to that that I was reading about it for the vaccine is they found that for the anti-vaxxers, the best way they found so far to get them the to take the vaccine is if their doctor tells them. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting example is so, you know, wh how come they believe in the conspiracy all the time? But then, you know, their doctor tells them, well, you really should take it. You know, it's kind of like obviously the doctor's in a position of authority, but but there's basically a trust issue here. Right. And so conspiracies, one way you can kind of break through a conspiracy mindset is if somebody that they really trust kind of points out how ridiculous it is, right? So that could be your your older brother, that could be your doctor, that could be a professor that you look up to, you know. And so I think one way we can kind of not necessarily change their minds, but kind of open doors in, a little bit so people can think more independently is have trustful sources, right? Trustworthy sources. And so that's why you've seen, you know, having... Uh, when Trump finally started to put a mask on, everybody else, all the people that weren't masking, I mean, obviously a lot of people aren't masking still, but that it took that sort of trust. You had to see the president do it, right? Yeah, I, well, I mean, but Trump did just get booed at a rally for saying people should get vaccinated. So Right, exactly. So he went a little too far, apparently. You know, but only goes so far. But I think trust is a big part of how we can kind of bring people back to the talking table is... You know, because if, if what I don't think works is when you just have the left and right going at each other, especially in like Reddit or Facebook or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Online. Yeah, there's no arguments. trust, room for trust there. Yeah. So there's a little bit of emotional intelligence required to to think critically because you have to, 
you have to be willing to be wrong, yeah. right? And nobody likes to be wrong, and, and none of us do, right? It, it's like the number one thing the human brain is constantly trying to do is have some sense of self-control in this, this cosmos that we're floating in, right? Yeah. And so nobody likes to be wrong, and that's just, that's why everything exists. We're trying to, that's what science is. It's looking for uniformity in nature, right? And yeah. so everybody wants to be in some sense of right and control. And so on Facebook, it, what it comes down to is both sides are like, well, I'm not wrong, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. So I think what you need is for people to open up and have that humility, they have to be able to, they have to be in like almost like a safe place in a weird way. So like maybe if, you know, you go on a fishing trip with your Trump brother and, and you bring your uncle along who's a, a doctor, you know, and, and somehow the virus comes up, a topic of conversation, and maybe that's, you're sitting on the water with your brother and your uncle and, and, you know, you tell them you really should get the virus, man, you know. Maybe that would break through, but... should really get the vaccine. Sorry, you're going to get the virus if you don't get the vaccine. But yeah, but maybe would that work better than, say, like, you know, just posting on your brother's wall and saying, you're wrong, look, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm hoping that... You know, it makes me think of... We both went to a very cool liberal arts school. We're very lucky. One of the things I really enjoyed about a small liberal arts school is you get these close conversations in a roundtable discussion where people can be wrong and be vulnerable and and honestly it's tough at first because you feel you know you're wrong and some or some other smarter student points out an error in your thinking or whatever so there is a little bit of a humility required but i think those sorts of environments are where you can change minds is when you have this sort of you're within the confines of an actual true discussion where people can can learn and think differently whereas you know the internet doesn't seem to it doesn't seem like a great for, great forum for that so i'm just sure. do you think that it's possible that maybe we're going about it through the wrong medium right maybe media and twitter and news isn't a way to change minds as much as yeah think. but i think i think most people already know that you okay. know like I, I i think i mean I'm not going to name names, but the people that I know who like engage and get into arguments on, on Facebook, I don't think they have any delusions of that, of changing somebody's <laughs> right. mind, you know, like I think they're, they're doing it more from a sense of feeling like they got to fight the good fight. Speaking of fighting the good fight, Drake, we're getting to our, our time here. Um, do you want to maybe just say some parting words on critical thinking? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we really gave it a, a good would talk through um i think for me the what i want to do is because we you know we haven't really talked about this this is our first episode right but part of the sort of you know um fabric of the whole show is you know philosophy right and and the and what i'd like to do is you know when we come back to this maybe we do a critical thinking part two you know down the road because i I think, I mean, and this, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, this is, this is kind of your baby, this show, but isn't the idea here that we, we're going to have a bunch of people on to talk about things that they know about, and, and, and so maybe this is, a, I think this is a good topic to start the show off, because we can come back to this, uh, you know, whenever we want. It's going to be part of the show. It's almost like the show itself is a, mo- a model for critical thinking, because, no, we're not trying to prove anyone right or wrong. There is, you know, even though we have our own beliefs on what, you know, maybe, you know, uh, we're not pro-Trump or whatever. But the people on the show, we're supposed to learn from them, right? From yeah. sort of their anecdotes and their areas of concentration. And, and uh, so, yeah, maybe in the closing, just tell, talk a little bit about that. Like now that we've kind of laid the, the foundation for the show, this sort of philosophical bent to it, uh, how does critical thinking fit into sort of what you wanted to do with this show? Yeah, well, you know, we we didn't really get into it today, um, but I think one of the key components for me about critical thinking is curiosity, right? You should have a consistent hunger for new information and new new knowledge that constantly is is reforming your ideas, right? And and I say reforming instead of reinforcing, and that's very critical, right? Confirmation bias says that you're constantly looking for things that reinforce your ideas. Whereas curiosity means that you're looking at for things that can reform your ideas, right? And, and change and update your thinking. And 
Uh, that's what this podcast is all about. We're going to bring people on and who talk about a variety of subjects from startups to communism to uh, plants to death. You know, we're, we're going to talk about everything and it's, we're going to uh, use those conversations to just learn some more. We're not here to really push an agenda. Uh, as Drake pointed out, you know, we, we do have certain political leanings and, and different beliefs that we have that'll come around, but we, we don't have a particular agenda we're going for other than to just help people learn about new things. Um, and that's also, you know, there's going to be a companion YouTube channel uh, called Zacopedia, where I uh, put together like a three-minute overview of something that we're going to talk about. So the, the one for this one will be philosophy. So if you're curious about um, some of those old philosophers that we were talking about, I'll, I'll take us through a little bit more of a visual history there. Um, but yeah, we, we're here, we're here to learn. We're here to learn from our friends, to learn from, uh, the other people that we have on the podcast. Um, and yeah, I like the idea of coming back to either critical thinking or philosophy or both um, uh, on a, on a somewhat regular basis, um, to just making sure that we're like staying true to, to what we our goals are here. You know, I think that'd be a good thing to just check in every now and again on. Yeah, it sounds good to me, and I think it'll be it's fun too. So you know, uh, you know, if anything, we we can uh, kind of uh, bring philosophy back into the into the forefront, you know, because I think one, if you look historically, philosophy kind of takes a back seat when things are good, right? And then when things get pretty nasty, that's when some some you see philosophy is like, oh well, yeah, we need our toolkit again, right? And I think we're at one of those points. You know, we dodged a bullet, you know, winning the election and getting rid of Trump. But the, the it's pretty much the same scene. It's not like everyone went away just because he lost the election. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I think the time is now to kind of like restoke the philosophy fire, you know, because it's uh, we don't want to be stuck in a cave. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Well, we got to explain that now. But maybe maybe some other time we'll explain the allegory of the cave. All right, Drake. Well, thanks so much for uh, being on the show today. And, uh, you know, it was great having you as uh, you're here as the co-host usually. But thank you for being the interviewee today. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We will catch you all next time on the Planet Nine podcast.